Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Hello, I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to Natalie Chapman, Managing Director and Founder at GemMaker. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, how are you, James? Very well indeed. Okay, GemMaker is a commercialization consultancy. We're going to be talking a lot today about the critical minerals sector. Very hot topic, both in this country and geopolitically across the world. So let me start with this, a commercialization consultancy for a start like GemMaker, it's a bit of an odd duck in the Australian market. I'm sure it's not elsewhere. But what are we actually talking about here just before we jump into the where it applies in critical minerals? Sure. So GemMaker, as you mentioned, is a commercialization agency. And that means we help research organisations and innovative Australian businesses get their new technologies, products and services out of the lab and into use. So Australia has world-leading researchers and innovators that come up with amazing ideas that improve our lives, our businesses, the health of our planet. These ideas don't actually get out of the lab if you don't have people like me who have a technical and a business background and understand what they've developed, how help them to determine if it's going to be commercially viable, help them source some funding for it to help develop that idea and then find partners and customers for it. So I'm that sort of glue between the research being done in the first place and it actually being taken up in the marketplace. I mean, I'm assuming there's plenty of work around for you to do right now, given that we do have that research prowess. I'm also slightly fascinated, and this is just an aside, I suppose, but your background as a formal education was Bachelor of Science at Sydney University and then an honours degree at UNSW, and, and then you've kind of pursued the business side. So, I mean, it's interesting and, I guess, self-evident that people with an innate interest in science don't necessarily become researchers in science. They do all sorts of different things, which is exactly what you've done. Yes. So, I studied... At UNSW, I did some surface science and I had the opportunity to do a PhD and research in that area. I decided that I really wanted to be in industry. I wanted to be working on different things and I really liked engaging with people and talking, I guess, hence we're on the radio today. But I got into marketing, the business side of things, and I could see that there's, you know, fantastic careers for researchers out there in science. And then there's other awesome careers for people who are also, I guess, don't want to be researchers, but want to take this research out there and do something with it. So, yeah, I found my calling in that with the, the business and the, the technical mix. Well, just given the track record of GemMaker, we're glad you found that calling. So let's talk about critical minerals and rare earths, I guess. Let's start with the basics. So give us a run through. What are we actually talking about? What are these raw materials used for? What kinds of products are they found in? And where does the world get these critical minerals currently? Sure. So 
Critical minerals are really defined by each country as those that are essential for the functioning of their modern technologies, their economy and their national security, and that these minerals are at risk of supply disruption with no easy replacement. Australia has defined rare earths as some of their critical minerals, and rare earths are something that I've been involved with for mm, about 13, 14 years in that industry. And rare earths are a group of 15 metals. They're found right at the very bottom of the periodic table for those people who are used to playing with the periodic table and there were these two rows underneath. Well, the first row underneath is the rare earths. And they're a group of about 15 metals with similar properties. And they're often found together in geological deposits. And they're essential for all of our modern technologies today. Interestingly, rare earths are not rare. They're found in small concentrations, which makes them difficult to mine economically, and hence they were termed rare. Okay, so when we talk about those products, I guess we're talking about mobile phones, we're talking about batteries for cars, we're talking about wind turbines, we're talking about, you know, all the stuff that goes into a whole bunch of military hardware. So the critical part really is self-explanatory there, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, because put it this way, neodymium is a rare earth and it's responsible for a lot of the demand for rare earths at the moment. It's in magnets, which makes your iPhone vibrate. It makes your AirPods play music, the wind turbine, it's the power generator in it, and it's also in the motor of your electric vehicles. So you're talking about quite large quantities of these things in the materials. So, you know, if you had like a wind turbine, you're using 600 kilos of rare earths in a wind turbine. Okay. So let's get down to a couple of the, I guess, geopolitical things. So currently, where are the main suppliers of these critical minerals? Where are they processed? And why is it suddenly a topic of conversation around the world right now? Sure. So what we find at the moment is about 75% of the world's rare earths are processed in China. And so they may come from various other places around the world, but most of them are processed in China. We do have a deposit in Australia and they're processed in an Malaysian plant. There's also a very large deposit in the US and also, I think at the moment, a lot of the processing ends up in China. And there are a few other deposits around the world at the moment. China has been extremely strategic with rare earths because like 30 years ago, they decided that rare earths were important and they were going to be of growing importance and that they weren't just going to dig them up. They were going to dig them up. They were going to process them. They were going to be experts in that area and actually do everything down the supply chain. So. When you think of your smartphone, your electric vehicles, where are they being manufactured? They're being manufactured in China. So it's a case of they've got the full value chain, they've got all of the jobs, and they've got all of the access to those materials. Okay, and things get complicated, I guess, simply because there is you know, somewhat of a fracturing of uh, geopolitical circumstance. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, distrust in the world. We see the US is putting the squeeze on China in terms of chips. And I guess that favour could be returned in relation to supply of critical minerals. So the big players are seeking to assure their supply chains around the world. This is the opportunity for Australia. So can you kind of describe to me what Australia looks like now, apart from the fact that we have these deposits, what do we look like as far as having 
the potential capability, the available capital, and the, I guess, integration into those supply chains with our like-minded partners? Sure. So Australia has a lot of rare earths and it also has a lot of other critical minerals. Lithium, for example, we are, I think, the world's largest supplier in lithium at the moment. So Australia is very fortunate to have lots of resources and particularly in those critical minerals. And as a country, we've been used to the whole concept of foreign investment, primarily involved in the country, and also digging stuff up and sending it overseas to be processed, used, etc. en masse. We haven't, as a nation in the past, looked enough at downstream processing and manufacture and getting all the way to finished goods. And so Australia is moving down that pathway now. It's a bit slow in the piece because I've been in this industry, like I said, sort of around about 15 years now. And so for that whole time, we've been saying, hey, Australia, you should invest in your resources. Hey, we should be in more of the supply chain. This is important. These metals are important. The electric vehicles and the phenomenon that's growing with that at the moment and the decarbonisation of the world relies on these type of materials. Our new technology relies on these materials. And so other countries have recognised that. Other countries have also not invested in varying that supply chain. So the supply chain is primarily in China and that is because countries have not invested in projects themselves either. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess where I'm coming at this, so if we have the resources in the ground, if we have a, a very successful and very kind of diverse resources and mining industry with incredible global scale and capability, why isn't it just a no-brainer that they start digging this stuff up and processing it here? What are we missing in this country? Is it capital? Is it skill? What's missing? Well, Okay, so we've started with resources and said we have the resources, so that's not such an issue. The skill set, we have, say, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, which is ANSTO. They have a group at ANSTO that are specifically in mineral processing, and they are world leaders in rare earth processing. So we definitely have knowledge, skills, expertise, IP, etc. in the country. And the new government coming in has been starting to invest more in grants, investment, R&D and all the rest of it. So it is happening, probably needs to be at a much larger magnitude of what's happening because what we're talking about is when we're developing processing plants, the massive chemical plants. So instead of that, dig it up, ship it out and needing that infrastructure, we need new infrastructure to be able to do these things. And that is actually quite expensive and may also need additional skills and expertise to be developed in the country as well. If we're talking about rare earths and we're going all the way down the value chain, we're going from ore to metal to magnet to electric motors to electric vehicles. So there is that whole supply chain and we're very good at some bits of it, but magnet manufacture, say, is missing and you'd have to debate whether it was worth having in the country or partnering elsewhere to get access to it. Okay, I wonder whether listeners might think, okay, we've got a rich mining sector. We've got some very successful commodities companies in this country and around the world who would be interested in our materials. Why would they need government support? Why wouldn't they look at this as the no-brainer that it apparently is and make those investments? Does that not make sense financially? 
So with iron ore and coal, you're talking about really large quantities of these materials being dug up and sent overseas. And the pricing is transparent and the contracts are transparent and all the rest of it. When you get into really niche metals like rare earths, the pricing is not transparent. The quantities are quite small in comparison. The amount of investment that you need to put into capital infrastructure is, we're talking about a billion or $2 billion for plants. And the risk appetite for your traditional financing institutions, they're not sophisticated enough to be able to, to cope with that. So with Australia, we have export finance, we have a variety of institutions that are providing investment, but even when they provide investment, they're still used to the old system of having transparent pricing and long sales agreements with clients. They're two things that stop investment in rare earths at the moment and have kind of stalled that for many, many years as a chicken and egg scenario. What do you make of the National Reconstruction Fund and the co-investment fund that the new government is establishing? Can you see its application in this area? Absolutely. They've called for submissions for the National Infrastructure Fund recently. So it'll be interesting to see what comes back out of that. And it's great, actually, that they've got critical minerals as a sector that will get funding through that mechanism. Because when we were looking for financing originally, Export Finance Australia was your option. And it only had a pot of $600 million for anyone wanting to access that fund. It didn't matter what sector they were from. So having a billion dollars for critical minerals is way bigger and is fantastic. It still needs to be larger to be supporting numerous deposits, not just maybe one or two. Okay. Now, we have spoken previously and you've talked about the need for, you know, really to understand a long-term strategy. I think you were referencing China before. They built their industry over decades. It's not something that you can turn a, a tap on and have things up in a couple of years or even five years. So let me ask you this, with a long-term strategy in mind, what would be some short-term policy steps that you would recommend or things that could be done in the short term that kind of cement a longer-term vision of building an industry here? Sure. Some of the governments and agencies are getting in and doing this sort of thing at the moment. So where they're establishing R&D centres, Queensland just recently announced that they were putting a $75 million critical minerals demonstration facility in. So when you're taking new minerals and you're proving up the supply chain and the ability to be able to process them in the country, A, you need to have the resource, obviously. B, you need to be able to work out how to get it out economically. And for that, new IP may be required, new research. So you may need some research and development happening in those sort of areas. So funding those is good. Having demonstration pilot plants, infrastructure around and the expertise to help with that scale up as well. So not just that it works on a bench, which is great, but you've actually taken tons and tons of ore, run it through a process, and then you can actually work out how much the plant's going to cost because you know that the process is going to work at a larger scale. So you need to be investing in these sort of things in the first instance. You need to also have government actually maybe have a bipartisan approach to sectors that are going to take 10, 20, 30 years to build. Because if you're talking about quantum computing, hydrogen, you're talking about critical minerals, etc., they all take a long time. They all take investment. 
And so you need to be putting those things in place and not having them change every three years or change direction for the country. It's also identifying who the partners might be in the chain. So getting international experts and national experts, not just having bureaucrats or ministerial staff, etc., coming out with policy. You do need industry, research, government all working together. So having those sort of roundtables, but really understanding the industry properly and having the right experts advising on it, I think, is also. All right, Natalie Chapman from GemMaker, the commercialisation agency. I'm going to start wrapping up now. Let me ask you this. This is a little bit strange, but you were referencing that governments, state governments and federal government are starting to take an interest in this area with some activities. I'm sort of interested, our long-term partners and investors, you know, from our friends overseas, I don't think they care if it's Queensland or Victoria or Western Australia, they want to deal with Australia. How much does that kind of federated competition between states get in the way of the overarching national goals? Or is it a good thing? I know that each state puts out what projects they've got and they go out and promote. I think it's probably better to have a national approach when we're talking about Australia competing globally, that we're all kind of in alignment and all supporting each other. So that's a better approach. Overseas, no one cares if it's New South Wales, Queensland or whatever. They're dealing with Australia. And so difficulty with projects getting investment in the past has been When you go to the overseas export credit agencies to try and get financing from them, the first thing they say is, well, how much has Australia put in? Now, when we say Australia, that could be the New South Wales government, the Australian government, et cetera, into the project. doesn't matter. It's how many Aussie dollars are in that project. And if the answer is no or they'll put in if everybody else puts in first, then internationally, you're looking at the project and going, well, is the country serious about this project? Do they think it's a bit dodgy? Why isn't Australia investing in it? Whereas Australia is used to going, get foreign investment in to you know, pay for everything. That's fantastic. And so that's why Australian thinking has to change. And it, I think it's moving down that pathway now. But yeah, it's how many Aussie dollars are in there overall? Okay, and let's finish up with this one, Natalie Chapman, and thank you very much for agreeing to the interview. I'm just going to ask, we have a new government, a little bit of a, maybe not a step change in direction, but certainly some fresh thinking. What's your impression of what you've heard so far from the new government? What would you like to see more of and what would you like to see less of, I guess, from them? Well, it's really been fantastic to see that the incoming government have recognised critical minerals as important and that they are putting out those submissions for comments so that they can fine-tune their strategies and their funding. If, I guess, the value of that will be in then seeing how they act after they get the feedback from industry. So if that can be fine-tuned. As I mentioned, I don't think that there is enough investment, that there needs to be more. There obviously needs to be investment in all stages of development as well. So you need it for that, you know, that very early stage, you need it for that proofing up and scaling up stage, and then you need it to help you actually secure getting the plant up in the first place. So it would be good to see that and that the government being a little bit more, and I'll say innovative, but actually looking at what's out there globally, how other countries are supporting their projects, their deposits, and their industries, because 
it is a holistic thing. It's not just, uh, we'll just chuck money at this little bit of it. You need to be looking at the whole thing and you need to be flexible in your financing arrangements, much more flexible than what is currently there. All right, we're going to draw it to a close there. Natalie Chapman, Gem Maker, thank you so much for coming on the commercial disco. Critical Minerals is obviously something that we're going to be talking about, I think, way into the future because it is, as the name suggests, quite critical and it's an utterly fascinating part of our innovation ecosystem. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks very much, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.